Brendan, Judy, thank you for, for letting me into your home, first of all, Judy. It's great to speak to you about this book. I'd like to start actually by finding out how you two first met. What show was it? Um, and then we'll get to how this book came to be. Take me back to your first oh, meeting. Well, I can tell you exactly. It's because um, Brendan and his company were doing Under Milkwood and we were doing Absolute Hell in two different theatres at the National Theatre and they used to make a terrible noise between two shows, a matinee and evening show. And so one day I met Brendan between those two swing doors of the... The vestibule, Of the, yes. of the canteen. Of the canteen. Vestibule. It's very grand. It's um, of, the, of, the, of the canteen. And I said, could your company please be a bit quieter? As we're all trying to lie down and have a little ziz for half an hour, whatever. That's how we met. So you were telling him off? Oh, yes, yes I gave was. him a good rounding telling yeah. him. He didn't take any notice at all. Um, and then we met... Then we worked together. Mm. What was little, the show that you were working on? Little Night Music. Yes. And we had the most wonderful time. I expect we behaved rather badly between well, the shows. Our dressing there. rooms were next door to each other. And I remember... I just remembered you being up there, across the thing, and no, looking no. down. No, no, no. Well, when we were doing Little Night, maybe that's when I was doing Under Milk Wood, and then I moved next door to you. that's right. And then one night, you locked yourself out of the dressing room, and I was next door, and you said, I can't get in, and I've got a quick <gasps> change. And I climbed. You this know, is the a heroic story. story. Oh, I know the national well. Yes. I mean, my uh, God, four floors up those dressing rooms, and I climbed out of my dressing room along the ledge. <laughs> in, I, honest to God, I, I had done it once more when I was back there in another show, but that's another story. But yeah, but I did, and I opened the door for you, didn't I? Kind. I probably wouldn't do it now. I could have. <laughs> I, I sacrificed my life for you. What a, what a start. You started off by telling him off. I he know. sacrificed his life so quite, that you could quite. do your quick change. Thank you. Thank you. These are the things on which great friendships are built. <laughs> exactly. And, and tell me a bit about how this book came to be, because it's a series of, I wouldn't say even interviews, it's sort of conversations really about all the parts that you've played in Shakespeare. How did this come about? Well, uh, this book would never, I just have to say, it would never, ever, ever have happened if it hadn't been for Brandon, because I would never, couldn't, hadn't even entertained the thought of a book. Mm. But COVID, we get, went into COVID, and we all got locked down, and <clears throat> and then towards the end of that, Brendan, we were on the phone one day, and he said, I think that I can come down. He said, why don't I, well, you say what you said Well, it, it happened before COVID, Jude. I had the idea, was it? Yeah, because I was... I'd been working almost continuously at the Globe since 2012, and about 2017 I thought, I just wonder if I would interview you for the archive department at the Globe. Oh, and you right. said, oh, that's a good idea. And then we started, we just dipped our toe in the water in about 2019, so it was before COVID. But then what COVID allowed us was a bit more time to invest, not that this, this is certainly not a COVID book, and it mustn't be, be talking about COVID, but during that time we were able to spend a lot more time together and get into much more detail about the book. Mm. Um, otherwise, I'd be lucky to, you know, you'd be on a film set, I'd be lucky to get 10 minutes of you in a caravan on a, you know, the Brecon Beacons or something, or you'd run some film <laughs> unit. But, um, but it meant we had a, a lot more time to invest in. But the idea did come before, but it was never meant to be a book, was it? We were going to handle... No, just a camp we, conversation. Don't speak for yourself. <laughs> I, I, I don't see myself as camp, but, but, um, but we couldn't handle it all because there were... Quite a few indiscretions in the book. Yes. Um, some of them have made it, others haven't. And there was a lot more swearing. I've taken out about 90% of the swearing. Well, you don't have to say well, that. Well, I think people need to know. No, well, I don't think people should know. Well, people see you as the Mother Teresa of British <laughs> theatre, you know. But you, 
Well, you are a potty mouth Nazi. There's a lot well, of that I'm <laughs> going to do with you. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yes. So, but this this idea for your next book, you said well, I've got a great idea for our next book. You said to me, it's "Have you an idea for the next idea. book?" And I said, "Yes. Why don't we go around interviewing people of ninety nine and a hundred and ask them what their diet is?" Well, I think that's a very interesting book. Yeah. Yep. If people want to live to be on a hundred, and find out what people are eating. What do you think the majority of answers are? <laughs> Complan or soup? That's a very short, but it's the stupidest idea. You don't know. You might be quite well, surprised. Well, I'm, I'm not pitching that to any you... publisher. I think it's re you can find somebody else to do it. I'm not doing that. Anyway, so we've gone off piece. There are so many amazing productions and parts um, that you cover in this book, and it would be very easy for me to literally just go through them all. But I, I thought I'd pick out a few parts that seem to be very special to you. And you mentioned Under Milkwood. We should probably begin at the beginning, which for you was Ophelia. Um, it, it seems to me to be a production and a, and a part that's tinged with lots of different emotions, actually, for you. But tell me, first of all, because you were fresh out of drama school and you went straight into playing Ophelia. So tell me I, how that happened. Yes, I did the fi the, my final show at, uh, at, for Central, which was at Wyndham's. We always in your third year, you did a final show, and to that, somebody from the Vic came, somebody from a film company came. Some, there were about four or five people in the audience. That's all. Mm. And um, Julia Wharton, who used to work for Michael Bentall at the Vic, was there. And uh, and the next day, I was rung, and they said Michael Bentall would just like to see you again. So I went, and he then said to me, can you do a bit of Ophelia? And and, um, and I did, and, uh, and then he said, will you come back the next day and do a bit, a bit more, I think, and I did, and he cast me as Ophelia. The critics, of course, were furious, <laughs> um, because they said, how dare the, the so-called National Theatre, which there was no National Theatre then, cast a complete newcomer, and I expect I was frightful, but my goodness me, Michael Bentall ran the company, mm. and he just came to me and he said, I'm just going to go on, and he said, and you're going to go on in the company, and you play larger parts, you play small parts, and you walk on in almost everything. Mm. But he said, that way you'll learn. Mm. That's why I've got a tree for him just out there. Ah. You talk about actually how... the for you a large part of the learning of course you, you did go to drama school but then the, the learning continues obviously and that you would just stand in the wings during productions and watch yes, and learn I'd, and learn I'd and all, learn. All, I always did that at the Vic because that you know watching and seeing how th things slightly change I mean but just observing it and hearing the audience and that's so much I think part of our education education in, in learning about acting mm. is listening mm. to what other people are doing. You drop, uh, so for somebody who sort of has spent some time in their life acting, you drop a lot of things which sound quite simple but actually really, really brilliant pieces of acting advice throughout the book. Um, and one thing I wanted to pick up which is really intriguing me, especially with Shakespeare, is you talk about homework and you think that there's a huge amount of work to be done by the actor before they go into the rehearsal room. Um, and during. And during, definitely during. But you, you sort of talk about how the idea of thinking about your character and the background and motivation, that word that everybody likes to mockingly use with actors, it, that's the work that should be done outside the rehearsal room. Um, fine if you've got some questions whilst you're rehearsing, but 
Yes, but don't take up other people, other actors' time. Right. When you could, that is something that you could you could do at home or think Mm. about quietly, you know. Um, Because then, because that time should be used about with your reference to other characters. The rehearsal time should be used about how your character reacts to things that other people say, not, not oh, I've got a problem with this. And what, yes, that's fine if you've got a kind of session on your own, mm. but it's not, I don't think it's up to you to use the, t- the rehearsal time with that kind of problem. Mm. You can go and see a director afterwards about it or, you know, but you can do, so- suddenly something can occur to you or it can be something you see, you know. And there's little prompts, I suppose, you get from whichever director you're working with. They will sort of ask you to try something, and you, with that yes. knowledge you've already got from your homework, will be able to do that. Yes, and it might throw all your homework out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, were you the kind of actor to have lines learnt before rehearsal started, or would you be learning them during the process? Oh, a bit of both. Yeah. But you famously of... never used to read a script before rehearsals, didn't you? For, for some... No, I used not to read the play. Not read the play at all, because you like to be frightened on day one. It's something you've always said. And I it's thought true. that was a pocket hole until I worked with you, and you, had, well, you hadn't read a little night music. I remember doing a play with Peter Hall at the Haymarket with Toby Stevens. And the Royal Family. <gasps> we did the reading. We came together for the, for the first reading of the Royal Family with Peter. And we read it. And at the end, I went, oh, my God. And he said to me, that'll serve you right for not reading the play before you say yes. <laughs> not quite the same with Shakespeare, because, you know, we've seen, well, lucky, if you're lucky, I think, you've seen a lot of the productions, so you know uh, more or less the story. <laughs> sometimes you can be very surprised. You, you, you do say that during the rehearsal process, you wouldn't spend a huge amount of time sort of working through the script and making lots of notes. You like to let it sort of percolate and hope that your subconscious will be doing the work for you whilst you're in between rehearsals, if you like. And that sounds to me like a very instinctual actor. Some actors do absolutely rely on instinct, uh, whereas others like to sort of have things written down. Yes, I mean, totally instinctive. I don't really work on the thing. I draw in the size of the script. Um, but, you know, you, you have to listen. So much of putting a part together is, is hearing what other people in the play say about you mm. and then deciding whether they're telling the truth or they're saying it for another effect. You know, it's a balance of everything. It's everybody together. Like, it's important to make a, a company. Mm. It's no good if a company's fractured. Mm. N- no good at all because the play won't be any good. Working on the kind of feeling in a company, I think is very mm. important, don't but, you? But I think maybe the, the bit Will is referring to is the bit where Michael used to say to you, because Michael, you said, was always poring over at the script or kind of looking at references, and, and, and he says, when do you do the work, Jude? When do you do it? <laughs> and you said, I need to go away. I need to not think about it in order to think about it. So you go yes, for Yes, I swim, suppose I am thinking about it, but it's your subconscious not in, an, and, in, you know, in another way, I suppose. But as Will says, you're trusting your instinct. And yes, and sometimes you can be wrong. You can, you can be wrong. And I think, as well, some actors don't have that good instinct to rely mm. on. I think, obviously, if your instincts are good, then great, but some actors have terrible instincts, and if they weren't doing the work, they might just deliver terrible performances, mm. so they have to kind of go away and really mm. work it out. But you, you, it's clear, especially with the 
the observations you make about acting through the book, it's clear that you do have very good instincts. You talk about the things that you learned about how less is more. So we mentioned Ophelia playing madness, uh, as you say, is not something that you can really no, you do. Think when you, yes, when you're young and you think this is a mad person, you come on, you do everything mad you can think of. <laughs> but in actual fact, you'd only have to do one or at the most two things mm. and the audience would know. You know, if you run in and say, where is the beauteous majesty of Denmark? And they end up looking at you and the beauteous majesty of Denmark's here. They know that something's not quite right. <laughs> Does it yellow? She's got a bit doolally. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you also, there's something about status. Obviously, you've played very high status characters throughout your career, many a queen. And uh, you say that, of course, you can't play the status. The people around you have Must. to play the status. Yes. But of course, I'm sure many actors have done that thing of kind of puffing out their chest and kind of going, I am, I am the highest status person. But that's not what high status people do, of course. You, know, you have to rely on the others around you to, to put you in your place, if you like. It's just part of a story, isn't it? Mm. People's reaction to you. <clears throat> the people where the way people would react to somebody who is, you know, if you were the king or the queen, we would be not sitting like this, I expect. No. <laughs> we'd be sitting upright a bit. Behaving better, and I'd be better dressed, and <laughs> we'd be, be, be very... It depends on the company. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. But I, I think uh, in the book you talk about, is it Tyrone, Tyrone Guthrie give um, Ian Holm the note about playing Henry V? Something like that. His status it, is what other people bestow on that's, you. That's mm. it. You can't play a king or a queen. You just... No, that's it. Other people's behaviour towards mm. you mm. That, that does that for you. You just have to play the rest of it. One character who I suppose definitely has that high status um, appears sort of halfway through the book, Cleopatra. And at the very beginning of the chapter, it says, Cleopatra is a mountain. <laughs> we may only sort of reach the foothills in this discussion. It is clearly a, a huge role and one that I think you took on, not with trepidation, but obviously it, there's sort of an expectation. I remember saying to me, you must be mad. <laughs> <laughs> By then I'd worked years and years with him. He said, I said, oh, Peter, Cleopatra, she's a big talker. What was the process of working on that show like in that case? If you were approaching it thinking, I, maybe I don't fit the mould of what people expect this character to be. Pete, because I'd worked so many times with Peter Hall, um, he, he, was, um, he was kind of inspirational to work with. And, um, you know, he... he, he um, I don't know. I, I completely forgot anyway. Mm. I completely forgot. I was given the most beautiful clothes to wear, mm. um, which Stephen was designer also with well, Alison Chitty on it. Was was designer on it. Was designer. I mean, the most wonderful, easy, wonderful clothes mm. to wear. But you also said he gave you those. T Sorry, I interrupted you. No. He gave you those two wonderful notes, which is. You, you don't have to play the whole of the character in the first scene. In the scene. first scene. You just play an aspect throughout the play. And in the book, you describe how that's a bit like pointillism. So it's like, you know, a dot of red, a dot of green, two dots of yellow. And then you look back at the end and suddenly there's a woman in a parasol, you know, like a Surat painting. Yeah. Mm. And I, was, I think there's such, that's such a beautiful description used. But it is, it's, it's a cumulative thing, isn't it? And the other one was just because somebody says something about you. Doesn't mean to say it's true. Yeah. Because of that Ina Barber speech, I mean, how does any actor play yeah. Cleopatra, and knowing oh, that he, he says so all was wonderful? <laughs> Michael Brown was so wonderful, sitting with his leg over a chair, and you knew that he was kind of back in Rome, 
and that he was with his mates. Mm. And he was saying, well, pff, you should have seen, you know, you, you could have smelt the perfume and everything. You know, yeah. somebody boasting and and uh, and saying, well, I, actually, I was there. Yeah. You should have seen it. And obviously embroidering it. and It's their point of view. It's or their it, point of view. Their... And it doesn't necessarily have to be true. No, either. Yeah. So that takes the pressure <clears> you play <throat> Cleopatra. You don't have to live up to that. That could be him bragging for his mates, as, as you just said. And yeah. I remember Peter saying at the very, very beginning, when they come on and they're talking about them, mm. he said they come on and they give them this huge build-up and then, then two shits underneath <laughs> it. And, and uh, he gave Tony and me complete kind of liberty. <clears throat> we ended up on the floor, we rolled around, we behaved really badly. Mm. And that was very important. Yeah. That particular rehearsal might have been an exercise, but a lot of it was actually retained for the show. It's really clear as well from the book that you are happiest when you are with a company of actors. You said earlier that that sort of camaraderie, the way that you work together is absolutely crucial, presumably, definitely with Shakespeare, but with, would you say with everything that you've done, it's you know, that kind of company feeling is... Every, I mean, my idea of hell, Real hell is a one-woman show. <laughs> uh, I, that... cu I couldn't do that. Who would you get ready for? Yeah. Where are the jokes? <laughs> Where are the jokes? When we did Macbeth at the other place, the other place then was a kind of garage. Yeah. It wasn't the theatre it is now. It was just up the road. Uh, and all the boys were in... Uh, a room, and the, the three witches and myself were in a little kind of cupboard off it. Mm. I can only tell you that the jokes and the laughter and the horsing about that went on during the half of that play was like no other play I've ever been in. But when we got that over with mm. and went on and sat in that circle of boxes, with the audience as near as you are, Will. Mm. The tension between us all was very, very, very strong. Mm. It was so, it, it was such an extraordinary thing. It was like, in a way, opening a bottle and the bottle exploding, mm. and then suddenly you get to the actual, and that's all rubbish. Yeah. Then you actually get to the actual stuff inside. It was a bit like that. Did you find that the the, the plays that you're working on, which are darker, more serious, like Macbeth, for example, mean that you have to have that sort of comedic release somewhere in there. Otherwise, it's sort of almost too much. And actually, as you say, it helps the seriousness of the work if you have that sort of release elsewhere. Oh, I'm sure. I, I mean, I can't do it unless I can have that. <laughs> Whatever the play is, I can't. I can't do it. Little Night Music. Yes. We used to behave very badly, didn't no, we? No, you did. <laughs> you and Larry Guitard and I used to behave very, very badly. And yeah, the scene did. before yeah, we, we all went on, <clears throat> we used to, every night we used to do it. We used to practice who could do the best sneeze. We did. Well, only because you know you did the best every night. <laughs> <laughs> you've got, would you do your sneeze now, your stage sneeze? Uh, it isn't a stage sneeze. Okay. Just remember... <laughs> <laughs> This is meant to be a very sophisticated interview for the people at Waterstones. You right. asked me. <laughs> no, but she's giving them what they want, which is the famous Judy Dench sneeze. A bit of camp. Yeah. Oh, God. 
never been required to do it in a play, though. No. Well, that can be the danger, I suppose, isn't it? Where the, the fun has to be, I suppose, a little bit backstage, doesn't it? Because if you take it on stage, there's the danger that it trouble. might unseat what you're then doing. You're I remember doing trouble. Hay Fever, uh, a long tour, and we sort of had to entertain ourselves. And we got into this thing which was doing indigestion acting, which was sort of whilst you were talking, you'd do, do a bit of that stuff. And then we started doing it on stage, and then it's really easy to... Then the whole corpse. thing goes out of the window. Yeah. And then, and then it's not funny. So that's right. And then we all get a good smack yeah. and have to start again. We were, exactly. That's quite true. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good thing to indigest. <laughs> you can, <laughs> you can have that, Julie. Yeah, that's my gift to you. But you mentioned play. It's so important in that, in that rehearsal process as well for the actor to be able to try things, to make mistakes. As you say, failure is really important because you have to be able to try something and fall flat on your face and... The reason you have rehearsals yeah. is to make the mistakes and get rid of the rubbish or try. And then there's only so much you can do because yeah. the audience will tell you the rest. Just thinking about how does a baby learn balance, as you've said before, unless it falls over, you have to make mistakes. And once you take the pressure off yourself and think, this is not an, it, it's not like a sport where there are clear winners and losers. It's not an exact science. Mm. There's, there's no good or bad or right or wrong. Mm. There are as many, as you say, there are as many people, there are many interpretations of Shakespeare, of any play, as there are individuals who've ever lived. It's, and it's wrong to say that there's only one way of doing it. But that's why failure is so, because you find where your mean is through failure, don't you? Yeah. You try it in lots of different ways. You go, well, this is just right for me. And then you, you then see what happens with the alchemy of a different audience every night. Yes, and what happens you. one night may not happen yep. the next night. That's not necessarily to do to do it's not necessarily to do with the audience, it's to do with something that happens, you know, everything slightly changes in some way. Yeah. You know, you have to have an enormous eye here, mm. you have to have an enormous ear here. You have to listen very intently, but you have to also be very watchful. Did you ever have actors when you were early on in your career, as you say, when you were doing all that watching. Were there certain actors who you thought they are something very, very special? Oh, you bet. Because I think you mentioned Peggy Ashcroft. Ashcroft as one of those people that you just... And John Gilgood. Yeah. And John Neville, who played Hamlet when I went to the Vic, and who I was subsequently in lots of plays with, and went to Nottingham when he ran the company, and then went to West Africa with, with uh, Macbeth, Twelfth Night in Arms, and The Man. Mm. Um, because those were their set books, mm. and that was that was the most extraordinary experience. With those actors, is it? I remember when I first started out, the actors I loved watching were the ones who made me feel very at ease when I was watching them because they look like they're completely in control of what they're doing, whereas other actors can sometimes look a bit nervous mm -hmm. and like they're sort of worrying about things. Is that perhaps one of the qualities of those actors, that they are so in control and I don't know about in control, Will. I don't know about in control, but that you... What, what would I say? That will you feel totally at ease, yeah. whatever way they might slightly alter a performance or yeah. anything, it wasn't at anybody's expense. It was it was entirely to do with the play, the play and telling that story. Mm. You can act with people who <clears throat> will kind of take off on their own a bit. Not often I haven't done that, I must say, but it, it can be that. Mm. 
but it's, it's what's so important of, of making a company, mm. of being part of a company. It's terribly important, the feeling um, that, that you have. Not that you all have to particularly like each other, but there ought to be a respect for that play mm. and a director mm. and telling the story to that audience. And that audience won't be the same as tomorrow's. And it won't have been the same as yesterday's. Yeah. I wonder if, because I was taught at drama school, that if you come off stage and think, my God, I was terrible tonight, chances were you were. If you come off stage and think, oh my God, I was brilliant tonight, the chances were you were probably you also terrible. <laughs> yeah. But if you come off stage and remember what the other person <coughs> does, the chances are right. that you're probably quite good. I know we touch it a little bit in the book, but I think your Quakerism plays, your generosity of spirit and your, it's all about your wonderful at trying to get the best. You try to make other people good. That was something else I was yeah. taught at drama school. We're, we're each other's uh, supporting actors, mm. and it's all about trying to... And I think, well, it doesn't work for me when I see actors, and I probably was a bit like this when I was acting, is I was too much involved in my own performance. But I think you're all about trying to make other people look good, and I think by default, then, you're probably... That's, that's what that magical thing... True. You think that's all crap. But not I think true. you undermine... I, not undermine. I'm trying to keep my head above the water. That's no, <laughs> no, but you're th again, about your Quakerism, sorry to go, go on about that, but it's about... It's about you don't want to take up too much time in the rehearsal. That that, that that's all coming. You know, lots of people are like that. And of course there are, and, and not all those people are Quakers. But no, it comes not. from that okay. generosity of playing that I think a lot of it is based on your. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, I think that you're you're definitely a servant to the story because, as you say in the book, the, the basic thing is what is the story that we're trying to tell, and how do we make that clear mm. to the audience? And particularly as well with Shakespeare, it's clear that you have such love and reverence for the words, the language, everything is in there that you need as, as an actor. And you, you just need to communicate that to the audience so that you are always seeing yourself as kind of the servant of that story. Is that fair? I think that's what we are. Yeah. I think we're trying to do the very, we're trying to tell a story in the very, well, I, surprise, I suppose to every play, but we're trying to tell that story in the very best way you can, mm. from the author to the audience. Mm. And so we're a kind of conduit. Tell the story. Yeah. Change people's lives about something. And with Shakespeare, because obviously, you know, we're talking about a, a writer writing 400 plus years ago. So he still endures to this day. And there will be lots of different opinions as to why that is. But the question remains, how much longer do we think, you know, people will continue to perform Shakespeare? Do you think that we will always, that those plays will continue to have something to say to people another 400 years into the future? Why ever not? Unless we're all going to, unless everybody's going to kind of change into some kind of robotic machine that doesn't have any emotions. Mm. But, you know, if anyone, it, it, they're entirely to do with being in love or being jealous or being envious or being persecuted, or being a warmonger, or being a usurer, or any and any emotion that we have ever felt, mm. he writes about. And as long as as long as people have those emotions and those kind of conf confrontations with themselves and with other people, then the plays will be done. And there's something very special, I think, isn't there, about Shakespeare in particular, that the 
what's extraordinary reading the book is your recall of huge passages of text which are still there in your head. Would you like the whole of the dream now? I could do it. You could do the whole thing now. Name a, name a line in the dream. See if Jude can pick it. Go on. And we dare you. See if Will... No, because I won't be able no, to. Well, Will will catch me out, I can tell. Well, go on. You'll have to, you'll have to help me out here, Brendan. Are we all met? Pat, Pat, here's a marvellous convenient place for our reference. OK, very good. <laughs> Ill met by moonlight, proud. Proud Titania. What, jealous Oberon? Fairy skip. Now, that's a very good thing, because when I was at my Quaker boarding school, we did the dream. Yeah. And I played Titania. And uh, so I had my line and everything. Ill met by moonlight, proud Titania. Oberon, what, jealous Oberon? Fairy skip hence. I have forsworn his company, is what I said. Hmm. It was only later that I realised it was I forsworn his bed and company. Oh. But they didn't allow us to say that. <laughs> a little little edit. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? I love that. Is it the emotion that you were talking about earlier that you think, why, why do the words still stay there? Because I can still remember the speech that I had to learn to audition for drama school. What was Whereas I did Richard the Second. Uh, which was, uh, I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live oh, unto, I the world. unto the world. And I can still remember that. It's a huge speech and wow. I can remember the whole thing. But I've forgotten everything else I've ever done. But the Shakespeare stays in there. You know why, don't you? Well. It's because it's the beating of your heart. So the iron big pentameter. The iron big pentameter is the beating of your heart. Yeah. I know a bank where on the wild time blows. Not my line, it's Oberon's line, sorry. Sorry, Obi. <laughs> <laughs> I often, I think because I don't act anymore, I often have people asking me, like, but what was, what was your favourite show? What was the favourite thing you ever oh, did? And, of course, it's impossible Will. to answer. But I do know that one of my favourite shows was, was with your old mucker, Cam Branagh, um, because the show was sold out before we even started rehearsals. So it meant that there was no worry about what the critics thought or no worry about the commercial aspect of the play because no. the seats were all sold. So we got together and we rehearsed and we did that show for the audience every night and it was just magic. Because what was it? It was Richard III up at the Sheffield Crucible. Oh. And it was just fantastic. And I just wondered whether, A, whether you have a sort of show that immediately comes to mind when I said favourite show, which I, there may or may not be, but also whether that removal of the kind of things like commerciality and criticism if you take that away, does it mean that just performing a play for an audience is just pure joy? I mean, you don't know how bookings and things have gone or anything, but, but, but it's the thing of coming out and telling. You think this might be the night where there might be two people here who don't like Shakespeare who we could change their mind. Yeah. They could hear a story that could somehow resonate or with friends of theirs or somehow mean something. Mm. Or maybe their granddaughter's playing First Fairy or... Or maybe, you know, anything, but just to communicate and to be able to tell a story and 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 people to receive it. And West Africa was an extraordinary experience because we did Twelfth Night, as I said, we did Twelfth Night and and Macbeth and Arms and the Man, which I wasn't in, but uh that was we were just not in theatres, we were just in an op open spaces and all these children who had set books, they'd never seen productions of the plays. Mm. And it was so exciting. Except that anything that rhymed too much used to make them laugh. <laughs> I used to have a very tricky time on the Thane of Five had a wife, where she used to bring the house down. It was tricky. <laughs> they were trying to do the sleepwalking. <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it makes, it 
it's good for you. And pure storytelling, as you say, there's sort of no, no, as you say, open space. So you're not in a theatre. There's no artifice. You are just simply you and the audience. Pure communication. That's all there is. Yeah. How about you, Brendan? How has it been for you looking back? Oh, oh. Well, it, what's been? I mean, I think we both agree that Twelfth Night is up there with probably our, one of our favourites. Oh my goodness. Um, um, I've, I've only, well, I say only. I've directed it, and Jude has been in it. Um, um, but I think. Oh, I don't know. What's been lovely about this was I didn't know Coriolanus at all. Mm. So getting into the, the mind of Volumnia and I mean, it's it, it's a phenomenal play, isn't it? It yeah. is. I don't know why it's not done everywhere all the time. It's yeah. that mother-son relationship and oh, I, I think it's a beautiful play. But um, I wouldn't know what the favorite is. The one I'm working on that moment, or the one I'm reading mm. at that moment. Yeah, it was that line extraordinary line that. You were saying the other day about uh, the end of Anthony Cleopatra, finish good lady. <gasps> what was it? Oh, finish good lady. The bright day is done and we are for the dark. Oh, crikey. <laughs> oh, don't stop me that. That's phenomenal. What a line. Yeah. What a line. And that's just, what is that, 10 words, 10, 15 words? Mm. It just the hits you somewhere. The bright day is done. And we are for the dark. We are for the dark. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. It's because you can see it, the, the, you know, it's hit you both, the emotion that is carried on that line, as you say. And, uh, you know, Shakespeare is filled with gems like that. And this book is, is filled with understanding why those lines have that power um, and yes. what it means, you know, for you as an actor to be the one delivering them. You said at the beginning, oh, this can't be serious. I don't want these interviews to be serious. <laughs> You know, um, <laughs> and then, and then when we were just being ridiculous, you said, "Oh God, we we we've just come across as facile." <laughs> um, but there are a lot, a lot. That's what's been nice. Certainly, the feedback we've had from people at Penguin is they've gone, um, how, "How funny it is!" And yeah. and you're, but you're... We, yes, we didn't set out for that. Render just came down and with his phone put the phone on the, just there and the phone on the side, mm. and then we would talk. Mm. So it was. It wasn't a laborious process at all. It was, it was, it was, chatting to a friend and an actor mm. uh, about something we both, well, know about or concerned about or have a passion for. Mm. But there was no aim, and maybe that's what you were saying about doing the, the production with Kenneth Branagh. You don't have to please anyone; you just go out and tell the story. Yeah. There was no end result, and we were just—we took the pressure. I said, "Look, if these interviews are no good, we were, I won't even hand them over to the, the department of the Globe, the yeah. archive department." But they just started to evolve, and and we just got into. I think we were just both nervous about being too well we needn't worry about being over intellectual because, <laughs> uh, speak for yourself yeah, neither of <laughs> us are intellectuals um so yeah <clears throat> but it's um i i hope the playfulness comes over in the book and just it's just the the, the, the fun and the, and the and the joy of the words and all these characters, all these words, they belong to all of us. It's not for just academics or just students or just... Act. I don't want this to be an acting book either. No, no, no. I'm, and my mother is, is reading it at the moment. She didn't. She's not read much Shakespeare and she's just now wants to go away and read the play. She's only read about seven or eight chapters. But she, did a, she didn't know a lot of these plays, but there's just something that's just chiming with her. I, I think that's... You demystify it in a way. You just kind of... You take the fear away, and you just take us in there, and mm. 
and into the world of the play and just say, it's all right if you don't understand every word. It's okay. They're just great stories and mm. great lines. And, mm. um, and not long ago, we had a friend of ours came down with a niece, and she was, I think, 13 or so. And um, she said, oh, yes, I'm going to... I'm going to a play with the school next week. Uh, and I can't remember what the play was, but it might have been Carlson Knight or, or Much Ado. Or, um, and then she, she said, well, she was going, she said, it's not going to be in that funny Shakespearean language, is it? <laughs> and I thought, oh, would you like to come back in here for four or five hours? You know? um, it's very exciting if you can get young people to come and say, gosh, I, I absolutely understand, all roared with laughter at something mm. that, that, that isn't an extra bit of business but is in the play mm -hmm. and that they can understand that, um, or somebody who is just in love and suddenly hears what, what Romeo and Juliet have to say to each other, or, you know, that's such a reward. Mm. And it's when you hear somebody saying they don't like Shakespeare, they don't know, and then they're saying the word assassination, which Shakespeare coined, yeah. or people will, will use Shakespeare. You go, that, no, that was coined by Shakespeare. Yeah. Or, yes. yeah, so it's people use it unwittingly all the time. Yeah. It's our language, it's part, but that's all right. We don't have to. I think you just lay a place, and that's again what I like about the book. It's not pointy finger, it's, it's a palms not. open approach. And you just leave a place at the table and you go, well, if you want to come and join and sit sit with us and join in the chat or listen to our conversation, that's fine. But if you don't want to, or you're not ready for it. That's also fine. Yes. You don't. You, we can't be. We don't want to be bossy about no. it. Well, it seems that after you had your conversations for the book, the only labour was Brendan having to remove lots of swear words. So I can only thank you for not having given me that same job after our conversation. <laughs> thank you for keeping it clean, Judy. Um, it's been Judy, excuse me, and <laughs> Brendan. <laughs> Um, it's been fascinating to talk to you about the book. Um, I, it, reading it, I, the only thing is that I wish I could have seen some of these productions and performances. And yet, just hearing you say a few lines right now, and Brendan, you have the same thing in the book, where your eyes light up and it's like you are sort of taken somewhere else. Uh, and so it's a, it's a real privilege for me. So thank you so much. Oh, bless you. Thank, thank you, you, Will, very much. Thank you.